multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again, and this time we take it all to the next level with a double helping of awesome Italian accents as Daniele's own sweet mother, Gloria Matteoni, joins us to share her incredible tale of a 10-year battle to gain the freedom of Lakota Indian James R. Weddle, who is sentenced to 80 years for a crime he did not commit, teaching all of us that when there is no hope, there is still a way. And now... Asking that you and your friends and neighbors band together to replace every member of the House of Representatives, I am Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, teacher, fighter, author, poet, and all-around swell guy with a fantastic accent, Daniele Bolelli. Away we go. Well, welcome back, everybody. Episode number 30, if you can believe it. We're into the 30s now. We're starting to be middle age in no time. <laughs> It's a really incredible episode today, and we're not going to mess around much at all because not only do we have Daniele with us, of course, but uh, we have a super secret, awesome, special surprise guest and an awesome story, and uh, we need to hop right to it. But without further ado, yeah, because we are not going to then, um, you know, lately we started listening to your feedback. We are doing shorter introductions, and then we leave a little bit at the end with donations and various announcements. We want to close, there's going to be some cool music to close the episode. We don't want to spoil it by adding things at the end. So we're going to do everything right now, but I'm going to do it super quick. So thank you so much to our sponsor, uh, Datsusara, who had been with us for day one. He has the shipments of some of the new hemp gear products from bag, backpacks, the whole thing. Check it out. Um, Onnit.com for anything from exercise equipment, food, supplements, the whole full thing. Check out Onnit.com and the short design, the freaking best t-shirts in the universe, the best material. I can't even say enough good stuff about short design. So for all of these guys, check our episode notes. There's the... um, something to click or is there there's the a discount code that you can if you go directly into their website or there's the connection to go into their website but in any case check the episode notes if you're in the market for any of their products also our affiliates will be in our episode notes coracao chocolate will probably be by the next time or something we'll start giving discount on coracao because chocolate season is in so that will be coming in and audible.com if you guys are in the market for audiobooks and you're you, you don't have enough podcast in your life and you still want to listen to more stuff almost sounds impossible i know but you know audiobooks are cool so audible.com that's the other option and again use the codes in the episode notes our t-shirts i'm getting a new batch of drunken taoist t-shirts that will be made on short design material Whee! so they will have a different feel compared to the one we've had so far and we are wrapping up designing new ones there's actually going to be a really cool new one that has multiple characters. It's a whole Dionysian parade. <laughs> and then we'll do some um, pre-orders only. They will do a few that are only by request. We'll only do by pre-orders with some of the specific characters from these more general shirts. There's some wild stuff. In any case, we'll get more into it probably next time. Kiva cards are available. And I don't think there's anything you can better do for a young person than get them a $25 Kiva donation card. And then they can pick somebody in the world to help out. 
and the money will come back to them. So if they don't enjoy it that much, they can cash it out of their PayPal account 18 months from now. Or they can do what we hope they do, is take that $25 and relend it again when it comes back around. So check out kiva.org. Other thing we should mention, thank you to Daisy House Music for the soundtrack. Um, please use our Amazon link, especially holidays coming up. Please do your holiday shopping with us. Yeah. Santa will reward you for it. And get a big Datusera bag to put all those gifts into, because once again, I know I jumped out of order, but I love my bag. Yes, they are they're awesome. fantastic. I cannot possibly push them enough. And what a great guy. Absolutely. So, Christmas Absolutely. season, you're going to need something to carry all that loot in. And nothing better than a micro ninja covered Datusera bag. That's what we need. So, yes, please keep us in mind during your holiday shopping. Doesn't cost you a dime more. But I'll shut up now because um, we are actually, I'm putting all the donations in a different episode that we're recording so we don't mess with more time here. Yeah. We just want to start rolling now. Now, our guest today is a pretty incredible one, everybody. I don't know if everybody is quite prepared for this, but Daniele's own sweet mother has joined us to uh, hopefully share tales of embarrassment and maybe even a, a little bit of a secrets we don't know about for sure there we go now we may keep that for a different day because today we're gonna have a purpose so all the embarrassing daniela game we can play we can definitely play it on a different day all right I'm absolutely right. down for that <laughs> and um all daniela's childhood stories right <laughs> I'm sorry, how do you pronounce your name again? Is it Gloria <laughs> Mattioni? Is that it? I'm sorry, I'm not quite so familiar with <laughs> Today is gonna be today's gonna be interesting in that sense that there's somebody who has at least as bad of an accent speaking English as I do. So that pleases me to no end. And right. um, the reason why we are gonna be here together chatting about this stuff, because actually we're breaking tradition, because you know how normally we do one episode with a guest, one episode without, and so on. Right now, we're, this is the second in a row with a guest, which means then we'll do two in a row without a guest, and then we'll get back on the regular track. So the reason why we do it is because we're gonna be chatting about, you know, October 26th, um, good friend of ours, one of the bravest, craziest guys ever um, died and today around this time of the year is the anniversary of his 10 years um, of freedom he had been in jail a really long time and my mama she's gonna tell you in a little bit help getting him out so this would have been his sort of 10 year anniversary of freedom it's uh, around the time of his birthday so we figure we release mid-december to add a you know a little bit of calendar sympathy to it <laughs> But um, basically, I mean, the whole thing of October 26 is interesting because he had spent quite a few weeks um, calling people, visiting people, basically saying, I have to say my goodbyes. I've uh, spirits told me that my time is coming and I got to go. And, you know, everybody thought, come on, man. It's like he was in his uh, late 50s. How old was he now? Um, he was going to be 50. He, he was born on 
20, December 24, 1955, so okay. 57. 57, yeah, yeah. It's going to be, so, you know, not, yeah. not an old guy by no stretch of the imagination. And yeah, I mean, he had a few well tissues, but nothing that would make you think you're going to die tomorrow or something. But he seemed pretty convinced. And then uh, October 26, he wakes up and he starts telling his daughter, you know, this is what I want for my funeral. This is how I want things. And, you know, she was like, come on, man, just shut up. I don't want to hear Shake that. Shake out of that. We don't need yeah. this. Uh, before the day was over, um, he took a curve and when the pavement switched to gravel on a dirt road in South Dakota and his car flipped and he died instantly. And, you know, because he basically that morning was like, yep, today's the day kind of thing. You know, it's happening. And uh, and sure enough. So talk about bizarre. You were wildly self-fulfilling. It's almost spooky. Yeah, 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 yeah. The man we're talking about is uh, James Russell Weddell. Uh, he's Yankton, Dakota, from uh, eastern portion of South Dakota. His Indian name, well, like typical with Indian names, there are a lot of them. There's, you know, it's all have to do with eyes. Uh, the Lakota word for eyes, Ishta. And one is uh, Ishta Topaiga Kopi, square eyes. Another one that his mom told me that they gave to him was Okshila Ishta Washte, which is basically Okshila is boy, Ishta is eyes, Washte is good. So you figure out your own translation there. Um, Dennis Banks, a leader of the American Indian movement, and nicknamed him uh, Wambly Ishta, which is eagle eyes. It's all had to do with basically his ability to be very aware of everything around him, having uh, eyes that would see through things. And uh, that's kind of the way. Yeah, his eyes were actually incredible. I mean, square eyes is a perfect name for him because uh, when he was looking at you at the same time, he was keeping under control the whole place. He was looking left, up, right, down, everything. So really like a square, you know, like he was keeping everything under his check. Normally, that kind of thing is the type of thing you see with people who have been in prison for a while because you have, but in his case, apparently, it was something that happened even before that, that he had from the get-go. So, interesting. But, um, and so you went out to South Dakota for his funeral. I went to his funeral um, basically obeying what he asked me to do. Right. Because, um, like you said, it was a few weeks that uh, he was feeling it coming, you know, like he was like a, Telling everybody, and of course, uh, none of us wanted to believe it. And uh, um, everybody was telling him, come on, man, you know, shut up. Don't talk like that, because he wasn't making feel uh, his family and friends good. But um, <clears throat> Jimmy knew he was somebody who always knew what was coming. You know, he had a very, very um, big connection to, you know, the spirit world, if we want to say that. And uh, so when he said the spirits told me, usually he meant it, you know. So, um, you know, he told me just a few days before, last conversation we had was like a couple of days before. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> he told me, 
<clears throat> I said, how are you? And he said, well, not too good. I'm dying. And I was like, shut up, man, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and then he was like, no, I'm serious. Listen. And uh, when it happens, I want you there. You have to come. And they said, I already told you, I promise. But uh, hopefully you'll be, you know, at my funeral <laughs> long from now and not, you know, exactly like that. But, um, yeah, that's what happens. So as soon as, uh, you know, I got a call from... His daughter Sicily and um, his uh, sister Mercy at the same time. So I was on the next plane the morning and uh, going down there because I knew that, you know, I didn't know when the funeral was going to be and um, what was going to happen, but I knew it was going to be soon because um, funerals at the Indian Reservation are a big business. Mm. It's not a normal funeral. It is not... Uh, any gloomy affair you know i i am somebody who didn't go to funerals i think i went to maybe three or four funerals in my life i don't like it you know and um, i still prefer funerals to weddings but still <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me too but that's another thing <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's definitely more of a celebration than uh, the western it is cultures totally like to do. celebration it's something you know it's like a feast and uh, you know you really want to celebrate the life of this person and be together and um, it's like four days wake and you always stay with the person you know you don't leave them alone even at night somebody sleeps there sure. you know so it's really a totally different thing and no matter how many people come you have to feed them so if it is hundreds if thousand you have to be ready for that so of course they're not usually in a house you know they're in a public place because uh, Jimmy family is very big, you know, he had uh, 15 brothers and sisters, so imagine how many nephews and nieces and cousins and, uh, you know, all around, you know, the country, all around the United States, so they all came. There were hundreds and hundreds of people and, uh, you know, it was just amazing. The, the family put up an incredible effort. Now, I got to know, just for the audience as well as myself, Let's take it back one step. How do a couple of nice Italian folks <laughs> know the Black Hills uh, tribe enough to have a good friend up there? How does how does how far back does that go? I'm gonna jump. Actually, she's gonna jump into that in one second. Oh, okay. I, I, no, no. I wanna throw one last thing, and then we go straight to that because that's the logical question that probably <laughs> everyone would wonder. But yeah, one thing about the funeral that was cool is like you see the whole thing is. You know, the casket was covered with a buffalo robe. There was, uh, you know, in honor of the guy, there were eagle feathers all over the place. Now, eagle feathers in Lakota culture, some other tribes as well, there's this notion that you gain a right to wear an eagle feather for every major brave deed you do. So, like, in traditional times, that's when, when you see the guys in, like, Hollywood movies with their headdress full of eagle feathers, basically that's a sign of being crazy badass because you earned the right for each one of them and so even to this day is often used in like eagle feather is connected with an accomplishment and so the whole thing about having eagle feathers all over the place was about that was uh, honoring him for his accomplishments and for the various brave deeds he had done in his life and how are the ceremonies is there tons of singing and dances and mm -hmm. an awesome just day and night drums banging and the whole bit yep yeah, wow. and then, of course, there is also storytelling. You know, oh. there is an open microphone, so everybody comes and tells stories, you know, about how they knew Jimmy and all of that. And uh, 
And it was pretty nice because exactly like people came from every other reservation and everybody had the stories and, you know, something to share. And it was a really honor, like a, a warrior chief of all times. Awesome. Yeah, so, people cut their hair in mourning and wow. stuff. And so yeah. they, you send it with him down and... Yeah. But the Lakota expect fully to be seeing each other again one time soon, don't absolutely. they? Absolutely, yes, yes. I, I mean, I don't know. No, Traditional no, Lakota stuff, I've heard all sorts of theories about, right. you know, not as much focus on the afterlife as I've heard in many other traditions. They're not more but, of a spirit plane. But uh, Well, they say exactly the the thing there was always saying Doksha, like we see each other again, right, you know, right, pretty right, right. soon. And, spirit uh, word. Mm, you know, the, the idea is he's uh, going home. Right. It's not, uh, it's not sad. Of course, yes, we're going to miss him. You know, it's terrible even now at this time of the year, you know, to think that he's not going to be there for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. Yeah, of course, it's bad. But on the other side, they're like, okay, he's going to go home. He's going to go with the spirits. He's going to be in a better place. And he's going to be with all the other people of his family, his mother, his, fra- his, his father, his brothers, sisters, you know, who went before him. And everybody's going to get their turn eventually. And no. exactly. We know all of us. We know we're here, you know, basically we're born to die. You know, there is nothing around that, you know. So it's better to think it this way than not like, you know, end of life in a, in a sad, uh, you know, or desperate way. Definitely not. He was ready. He was telling me, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm not scared, you know. And um, because sometimes, of course, hearing him talking like that, I was like, don't be scared. And he said, I'm not scared, <laughs> damn it, <laughs> you know. But that's, I mean, one of the things, you know? that's definitely a defining characteristics of the man's life is... Uh, yeah. You can say a lot of things about him. I'm sure there are ways in which he could have improved, the ways he would have liked to be better in this and that and the other. But one thing that you can never question about the man is his bravery. It's like, I don't think I've seen hardly anyone like this with just complete fearless attitude when it comes like you know if you want somebody to have your back in a fight that's the man because you know a lot of people talk big a lot of people are kind of tough this is a man that if he liked you he would not think twice about laying his life down for you in in a heartbeat just like like that no biggie to him like jimmy was somebody who walked his talk you know he was not just big into talking and saying things you know if he told you something oh boy his word was his word you know he would keep the promise no matter what and uh, he was a defender of his people, so everybody was going to him asking for help, asking, you know, to step in, even people he didn't know at all. And so, like when you met him, I remember, which then will lead to how you met him and rich question in that regard. I remember when you met him, he, there was a relative of his who needed a kidney transplant, <laughs> a relative he had never met, and he was trying to figure out how, you know, maybe I can get the jail permission to donate my kidney and do this and that. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? You know, it's like, I mean, I'm sure that's a sweet thing, but you don't even know this person. You know, it's like some relative. From, yeah, it's like, so yeah, that that's James no, in a no, nutshell. But this is exactly him. Like he was somebody who would give his last dollar to somebody he didn't know. He would give his car, you know, if he saw that somebody needed it more than him. And then he would walk, you know, in the middle of winter in South Dakota. And uh, I mean, it, it was incredible. True like, story, uh, by the way, not yeah, just that he would. I mean, <laughs> it's like done not that. like he did it, you know, and then he remained without a car and you're like, and now what, you know? And uh, 
So he was like that, definitely, even when he was in prison, like, um, well, Daniela remembered this story for sure, but the first time we'll get to how I got to meet him in prison the first time, but the first time I went there and he had one hour behind the glass to tell me his story, he came down with papers from two other prisoners, no, because he wanted me Trying to, to help, help them, them too. Yes, so that impressed me, you know, in incredible way because I was like, oh my God, here you are with one only chance, you know, to meet somebody who can help you, maybe, and you have to convince her anyhow because I'm not somebody, you know, just get convinced in a second, you know. So, and he, he was sharing his time, you know, already to talk to me about two other prisoners who were, you know, in horrible health situation and they were not going to be helped by the authorities of the prison. So that tells you a lot about how the man is, of course. No? Yeah, so you want to tell, how the hell did it happen? You know, why did you end up meeting this guy? How do you find yourself exactly? You are from Italy originally and you find yourself in South Dakota State Penitentiary as a right. visitor meeting this dude that you never, it's like, what's the deal? How that happened, <laughs> yes, right. exactly. And how that happened is as crazy as the rest of the story, meaning how this guy became my best friend for 20 years, you know, so. And uh, at the cost of sounding new agey, <laughs> I have to tell the true story. And uh, I met James R. Weddell the first time in a dream. And uh, it was... Uh, Carlos yeah. Castaneda will be by very shortly. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get it weirder was, by the second. <laughs> we are going to get weirder and weirder. Maybe there will be angels flying around, but that's... Uh, and believe me, I'm not a new age person. So I definitely have a very rich dream life, that's for sure. I believe in dreams. A lot of times dreams told me things uh, that, you know... Mm, it was very actually useful. My dreaming has been useful even in... Uh, James' story, you know, the next um, years. But anyhow, I, I, dream, I dream about this guy in a cell, definitely an inmate. And uh, I dream of this guy, and he was um, sitting on the floor of his cell, you know, with, of course, a typical cell, you know, not fancy, not fancy place, not fun. Uh, bars at the window, you know, and uh, mice on the on the floor where he was staying, and um, he was of course he was very sad. He was wearing uh, he, he was wearing a red bandana across his forehead, and uh, he had long hair, not too long, like shoulder length. He was definitely <coughs> native. I could see that from his features, and. Um, he had a collar, like a cast, you know, like uh, around his neck, like when somebody is injured, right? And uh, now listen to this. This is the, the crazy, the creepiest, spooky part of that. This was October 92. In October 92, James was actually in prison in Marion Federal Facilities, very far away from his land, his people, you know for something that we'll say later. But he was perfectly healthy. He had no collar around his neck, nothing like that. So what happened is in December, so three months later, basically, two months and a half later, he was transferred back from Marion to South Dakota State Penitentiary, and the car he was transported in got into a wreck, and 
basically James and the other prisoner, uh, the other two prisoners in the van, didn't wear any belt and they were shaking inside and so he got a very bad case of whiplash, you know, and uh, he ended up with a bad head injury. So when he arrived in South Dakota at the end of the year, they didn't give him any medical assistance. They basically gave him 27 Tylenol for pain. After the wreck. After yeah. the wreck, while <clears throat> the two white prisoners who were with him got CAT scans, MRI, the usual deal, right? What you should do, you know, in a case like that, particularly with a head injury. So, of course, he was damn scared, you know, because in that case, yes, you are scared, you know, that something is wrong. <clears throat> and... Um, you don't know what it is. He was in unbelievable pain. And uh, <clears throat> his family got, they put it immediately in administrative segregation, so he could not have any contact visit. You know, he was behind the glass with a microphone, and uh, his family tried to see him. They could get to see him only for, you know, a few minutes that way, and not. Uh, and then they tried to inquire why he was not given medical assistance. Of course, they were, you know, like just, you know, rule off and uh, nobody wanted to say anything. And in that period, he, while he was in Marion, he had uh, some uh, pen friends in Europe, you know, like a group of people who were corresponding with him and trying to help him, you know, like corresponding. And, and they too tried to uh, find out what happened to him, calling the prison, asking, you know, why he wasn't getting medical care. But no answer, you know, his mail was blocked, intercepted, you know, so basically nothing uh, was done for him. So in March uh, 1993, I got a letter from Italy and uh, from a woman, part of this group, and uh, she was, she knew about me because I was a journalist and uh, she knew I did some work for Amnesty International while I was still living in Italy. I was living in America only since a few months, you know, from June 92. And she sent me this letter asking me basically, since I was a journalist, if I could help them, you know, maybe calling the prison and checking on them, you know, checking on him and know what was going on. And she asked me permission uh, to give Jim my address, you know, in prison and so that he could explain me better, you know, because since they, they were convinced that the letter in the United States was going to arrive while, you know, the letters to Europe were intercepted. They didn't want people from Europe to know about him. And so that's what happened, you know, like, uh, basically, I received this letter from Jim, and he put a picture of himself inside the letter, and when I took the picture out, I almost fainted <laughs> you know, on the spot, because, of course, he was that guy. And so at that point, both the picture and this letter, the tone of his letter, how he was, you know, talking about himself and uh, telling me he got an 80-year sentence for a manslaughter in second degree that he did not even commit. But anyhow, it already sounded so crazy because, I mean, in California, manslaughter, there is ten no years. way. Yeah, yeah it's 10 like, years, maximum That was 80, eight right. not 18, not 80 for manslaughter, which tells you something fishy is going on because you know manslaughter is like right to anywhere from 2 to 15 typically maximum yeah maximum. that's the range but anyhow he didn't even go into his story like the whole you know legal thing but uh, just telling me that um, he was in there for something he did not commit but you know the, at this trial there was a lot of injustice and uh, all of that 
So anyhow, he asked me if I would go to to see him, you know, and uh, help him to get medical care and um, and call the prison eventually, you know, and ask, uh, you know, them what was going on. And uh, so... You know, I did because, of course, exactly like Daniele said, there was something fishy there. For sure, it sounded like a crazy situation. Racism was playing a big part. And we have to keep in mind, we're talking about South Dakota, not now, right, but a long time ago because uh, um, the manslaughter he was charged with was something connected to an accident happened at the reservation in 1986. So a totally different situation from what it is now. And uh, so that's how we started, you know. Yeah, speaking of which, let's give a little bit of background on this whole thing to lead back to this point sure. and where we're at with 1993 and what's going on. Youngton Reservation is in the eastern part of South Dakota. Unlike most other native reservation, this is what's known as a checkerboard reservation, meaning a bunch of land was sold over time and so there are patches of Indian land next to patches of non-Indian land next to patches to so it's not a whole big native land base is kind of mixed which is wouldn't be a problem except that in South Dakota for you know there is a long history of very heavy racism and not the friendliest feelings between uh, local white population and natives so you know checkerboard reservation means a lot of violence occurring on a fairly regular basis now things by the way have gotten considerably better in south dakota over time so today is already a bit of a different story not that there is no racism obviously there still is but it's you know a micro version of what it used to be even just 20 years ago sure the um, his family his um He's related to, for those of you guys who ever read American Indian stuff, um, Vine Deloria Jr., the guy who wrote uh, books like Custer Died for Your Sins. You know, he's sort of renowned as a prime uh, American Indian intellectual. He's, um, they are related. They are, I forget the exact relation, but it's basically the same family. His, uh, his family is all Yankton, except his uh, grandfather on his mother's side was a gigantic Norwegian dude, some 6'5 guy, was nicknamed Tool Fox appropriately by the Yankton. <laughs> and um, his mom, Hazel, spoke, understood the Dakota language, spoke a little bit, but, you know, both she and James' father would only use it when they didn't want their kids to understand what was going on. It wasn't something that they used on a regular basis. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that throughout the entire early part of the 1900s, if you are American Indian, more often than not, you get sent to boarding schools. And in boarding school, you got the shit beaten out of you every time you speak your own language. So in very effective fashion, boarding schools were stamping out, driving American Indian languages into extinction. And so you see it right there where, you know, his parents still kind of spoke and understood, spoke a tiny bit and understood more. And then with each generation was less and less, right? So that was part of the contest in which he grew up in. They would always tell you, remember even when we were in, you know, like at the reservation, like Cheyenne in in River Reservation, they always say, uh, we didn't teach the kids the Lakota language because we didn't want them to get in troubles, you know? Right. Now, nowadays, Totally different situation. It's like, you know, now even his nieces and, you know, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, they're studying, you know, 
like the Lakota language, either to sing, you know, drum, whatever, mm-hmm. the songs and everything. And some kids study that in school, right. which is Absolutely. great, you know. Isn't it amazing, though, that the same horrible tactics that the Spanish brought over 400 years earlier oh, were yeah. still completely in effect 400 years later mm-hmm. and oh, quite effective? Yep. It's nuts, absolutely. So speaking of the context of the Yankton Reservation, one of the things that stereotypes exist for reasons, so you know, the stories about poverty and alcoholism and violence and all that stuff, well, to a large degree, there's big elements of truth in that. You know, Jim was telling stories about how even when he was a kid, you know, his father drank a lot and so there were plenty of cases where his father would then come home drunk, smack around his mom, all of that. And he would tell me a story of like he and one of his brothers when they were about eight years old, they would just, one would dive for the dad's legs, the other one would jump on his chest and try to pin him down or fight him to kind of make sure that he wouldn't hurt their mom, that kind of stuff. Later on when he was 12, at some point he lived with some other friends and he would regularly, you know, when like boyfriends would be abusive to their friend's mom, the, their own, her kids were freaked out and in a corner and Jim being Jim, you know, being crazy and fearless, he would just dive right in and just get into a big fight with an adult to stop it from happening. And that's, by the way, part of where his legal troubles begin is the fact that he's not the kind of guy to look the other way. <laughs> Injustice was not his friend. No. So no, first, um, first run in with the law is when he was 14 years old. And uh, here's, this is Wagner, South Dakota, you know, tiny place, not a big, huge town. And he is walking down the street and hears somebody screaming. And so he, it's close by, so he ran up to see what's going on. He peeked inside this open window in a building and he sees this one adult uh, white guy trying to rape an Indian teenager. So he jumps in, this is this guy workplace, so he has a bunch of tools and stuff. So he grabbed a stick, whack the guy on the head, grab the girl, off they go running. And then it's gonna be the word, you know, the white guy is gonna say, this crazy Indian attacked me for no reason. And these, these two crazy teenagers. And you know, there's really not much other than word of the white guy, word of two Indian teenagers. Guess which side authorities believe. So Jim will be sent for, I believe, six months to a psychiatric institution for his irrationally violent behavior. Following year, he's 15, they come knocking on his door saying, hey man, you know, your dad is getting beaten up in the middle of the street. And he and one or two of his brothers go up to see what's going on. And, you know, there was the one bar in town that was owned by non-Indians. And the typical thing is that, you know, they will let some of the Indian guys come in and drink. And then when they run out of money and they still want their drink and by then they are drunk, they get kicked out, which is normal in any place, except that usually they would also take it a few steps further and then proceed to enthusiastically beat them up in the street. So when Jim and uh, one of his brothers arrive, they see that that's what's going on. They decide to beat the hell out of the bouncers and proceed to just trash the bar. So off to Juvenile you go. And uh, he's sent to Juvenile, which was, um, there was a camp that they had of, uh, for Juvenile criminals, I guess, in the Black Hills, which is sort of ironic because, you know, the Black Hills are Lakota sacred land. He had never gotten to travel there yet. He does so for Juvenile Institution. Nice introduction. The second he got there, he felt like, hey man, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I don't, I'm not ashamed of what I did. I don't think I should be punished. So I think I'm out of here. 
So he goes to the laundry room, he puts his clothes in the dryer, planning ahead since he knows he's gonna have a long, cold and wet night. He gets his warm clothes on and off he goes escaping. So he's, uh, as he's breaking out, he gets to the fence and he's like, fuck, this thing is all locked. I thought there was a place, I thought I saw a place where I could sneak through. And right there in the story he told is that he saw this deer right across that kept looking at him and went close to the fence. And so he went closer and closer to this deer and he realized right on that spot there was a little hole in the fence. So he went under and his idea is like, when the deer took off, I followed that way. I thought, hey, easier to help me. So I'm gonna, so he does escape. So, you know, you can see how by now he's accumulating a record. Now, none of these actions are your, you know, the guy who steal money from some grandma somewhere far from it. But you can see how in the eyes of the law, you're a troublemaker. Yeah. You're a 15-year-old punk who is now big trouble. And, you know, these happen a lot. They were, you know, I'll spare you the whole legal curriculum, but there's a lot of these uh, accidents. One of the funniest stories he told me is when he was a kid and a teenager and tribal cops are arresting him. The cuffs are on. I forget which one was this about. And the cuffs are on. And all of a sudden he hear, and his brother Ron has a shotgun pointed on the two cops and he's saying, you guys didn't see him today, okay? Just uncuff him, go away. You just didn't find him, but everybody's happy. And the guys were like, yep, you know, off the cuffs come <laughs> and uh, off you go. And yeah, his brother Rod, uh, you know, Jim liked him a lot. He always argued, you know, in the old days, uh, he would have been the kind of man you, want to, you always wanted close to you for uh, as a warrior because um, I, you know. uh, I like him a lot too. I mean, you met him too, and mm-hmm. uh, finally, you know, <clears throat> he's a great one. Yeah, I mean, he's like Jim in many ways. He's like Jim, you know. He's somebody who would never. I mean, we're not talking about hotheads, you know. We're talking about somebody who, you know, yes, for sure can use violence to defend, you know, somebody else. Because Do what there has is to be no, done when it's right, time. Because there is no other way around. Later on, of course, Jimmy wanted to try different ways, wanted to try, you know, also the power of word and wanted to win his case in a court of law to show his people that it could be done. You know, that if you really put, you know, your heart and, you know, your mind into that, it could be done. Of course, it took a lot, you know, and, um, well, the whole thing, we'll get into that, but it was a crazy legal battle. Since I stepped in, that was 93, as we said, it took uh, <clears throat> basically 10 years. 10 more years in jail. 10 more yeah. years, yes. So it, for this thing, this manslaughter, he has been in jail like 18 years, you know, out of the 80, until finally... We won the case in su- Supreme Court, you know, so. South Dakota Supreme Court. Yeah, you, US South Supreme Dakota Court. Supreme Court. Speaking of that, how do things work jurisdictionally? I mean, right. on, on, on their lands, and the checkerboard has to make it even worse, but. Tribal land is, um, you know, federal government still has jurisdiction oh, they on, do. Uh, on major crimes. So, you know, like tribal, um, like smaller type of crimes fall under tribal jurisdiction. So, like the sheriff would handle that sort of. The, the, right. 
native sheriff or right. whatever you'd call. But yeah, it's kind of messy because like the laws when it comes to tribal land, because there are basically three different entities. There's the tribe, there's the state, and there's the federal government. Mm-hmm. And the feds can roll in whenever. Feds, yes. State varies. It's kind of a push and pull with the tribes. Right. So it, it's a crazy complicated one. I mean, and I- This also depends against who. If it is a crime committed from Indian against Indians, right. definitely tribal. Right. If it is Indian against a white person, you know, then it gets complicated. Yeah, it depending can get of where it happened in a checkerboard reservation, as you can imagine, you know, the borders are not like every corner can be. This is state. This is tribal. <sighs> you know, so it gets really complicated. Yeah, and that's what happened in his case. You know. But yeah, a little bit more storytelling before we get to the case. The, um, one thing that Jim was involved in at some point that um, got him again on, in trouble with the law was uh, what was known as the pork plant takeover. The pork plant takeover mm-hmm. was um, the, um, some non-Indian guys that invested money to start a business on the reservation it was like a pork uh, packing plant, you know, for meat and stuff. And uh, the tribe was getting screwed over because the kind of stuff that they were um, promised didn't get there. You know, they were not given the jobs they were promised. They were not. So after they had allowed the place to be built there. So at some point they had occupied the place physically to try to force these guys to come to terms and this whole thing. And so when, you know, Jim, of course, got in trouble for that, got a sentence. I forgot how long it was, but, you know, sizable enough. And then this is where one of the craziest stories take place. The, um, uh, say what year was that? Because it gives 1980s, I guess. 1975. 75, okay. So. At that time, um, Russell Means, who would become one of the leaders of the American Indian movement. If you guys ever watched the movie Last of the Mohicans, you see him in there. He played the father to Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie. He is like very renowned for political activism and... Jim liked Russell a lot. Russell had, was party Ankton and there was, and at the time, following the pork plant, Jim has, of course, escaped because that's part of his modus operandi is to escape from jail at every <laughs> occasion. So he was on the run and one of his uh, friends and Yankton leaders, uh, Greg Zephyr, I guess, had called uh, Russell Means to invite him over and also trying to figure out ways to help James and so on. So Means goes off to the Yankton Reservation. They are all having a big party. James is there. And uh, this is where things turn a little weird. As James put it is, none of this stuff would have happened had everybody been sober. But that was not the case. <laughs> There's a lot of stories that start that way. Yeah. A mix of alcohol plus machismo led to a few incomprehensions, let's put it that way, where Russell Dean <laughs> thought that a couple of guys there were informers for the FBI oh, and was ready no. to blow their head off. James suddenly stepped in and he's like, no, what the fuck are you doing? You know, words started escalating. This is among friends, right? People who are... <laughs> but before you know it, guns were pulled out and it led to a whole big shootout. And... Uh, Russell Means was wounded into this whole thing. This, by the way, oh, is totally it's... fucked up. How um, there's a book called Agents of Repression. That's uh, the guy Ward Churchill. Uh, he's a guy who wrote a bunch of books about American Indian issues. He got kicked out of University of Colorado at some point because uh, I guess they questioned his research on some stuff. But you know, some of the way they questioned his research is a little shady because I think they were going after him for his politics. But at the same time my personal experience in this he's a royal dick because 
what happened yeah. with agents of repression is he printed a story about the shootout between means and the one that James was involved in, completely distorting the record of what completely. happened. Yeah. Basically accusing James to be a goon, which in the context of the 1970, the goons were paid by tribal governments to kill American Indian movement members. You know, nothing, not only this is contradicted by Means' own telling of the story of what happened in his own autobiography, which is still biased, but less so than or Churchill, is also contradicted by everyone that I've talked to who was actually there, um, who had, had experience of the whole thing. But in any case, eventually, after you know a long, you know, James felt bad about the whole thing because Russell Means was one of his heroes. He loved yeah. the guy in a lot of ways, and uh, he um, and he felt twice as bad because what ended from that story, you know, at the. Mm, they basically let him slide. It's the only time ever where he got a pass from the law because of something he was involved in. And the reason why he got a pass was because he was against Russell Means, who was hated by authorities even more than James was. How convenient. Somebody, I think the cop even told him, and, you know, you guys should have gotten a medal for that, you know. And so James was feeling like crap because he's like, shit. These, you know, but, you know. And see. plus it gave him... A lot of troubles in prison because, you know, this story was going around. Oh. And, you know, of course, you know, people who were not there and, uh, you know, they didn't know what to believe. I mean, Russell Means was a big hero of the American Indian movement. He was also Jim Friend, but, you know, they didn't know that. So reading that, he, he had a lot of, you know, troubles out of the stupid story in that book. No? So, you know, for a long time, in fact, even when I met him, he was always asking me, you know, if you... If you meet with Russell Means, you know, please, please, you know, straighten <laughs> it up, you know, because it was like, yeah. Yeah, so fuck word Churchill and this horrible mm, line, basically. But it's interesting, too, like when um, not too long ago, shortly before Russell Means died, when James was out of prison, they had a chance to meet again. They got together. They smoked the pipe together. They uh, basically they renewed the fact that they you know they were friends again and uh, they you know after that they were all cool again and everything was fine, but uh, it's one of the stories that yeah can happen <laughs> especially in the context of the times when it didn't take long to pull guns out. That's how it went wow. and uh, in fact James actually wanted now for his funeral wanted some of his ashes to be spread at Yellow Thunder Camp which was a camp that Russell Mean had organized in the Black Hills. And it was part of an effort by the American Indian movement to reclaim part of the sacred land in the Black Hills. So that right there tells you not exactly a goal now to get the American, you know, far from it. But in any case, now the Black Hill thing is interesting because that's one of the big story of James' life revolves around the Black Hills. To give you guys a little bit of context, the Black Hills majority of Lakotas consider it their sacred land. It's not just a piece of um, important land, but a special one. One that uh, has major religious importance for them. Now, according to the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty, the Black Hills were part of the land that the United States acknowledged as belonging to the Lakota nation within the boundary of their stuff. Until? Until about six years later when Custer leads an expedition in the Black Hills, discover gold in there, suddenly there's a gold rush and the government goes, well, we're having a hard time keeping our own citizens out. Why don't you just sell us the Black Hills? You know, there are a few Lakotas who are willing to have that discussion, but others who are 
that's like crazy horse doesn't even bother meeting with the negotiators but he send 300 of his warriors that show up guns in hand saying anyone who even think about putting pen to paper and trying to sell the black hills would be shot on the spot so nothing comes out of it eventually war breaks out again as the u.s decide we want this land screw you we're, we're done being nice you mean the u.s broke a treaty against the indians never happened right what are you talking about? <laughs> right so that's where Holy the famous smokes. uh battle of the little big horn take place lakatas win battles but lose the war because <clears throat> they are running out of buffaloes they're running so by 1877 it's all done um they surrender and at that point the government will try to play nice like now that they have it and they are all prisoners of war is like how about now would you sell us the black hills and you know despite the fact that obviously they're under duress despite the fact that the people signing there are people signing multiple times there are dead people signing somehow so you know there's a lot of forgery they get about 10 percent of the entire lakota population to sign now the requirement that the treaty had set it was 75 percent however Congress at this point decide that math is just an opinion hmm. and 10% is just fine. This opens one of the longest legal battles in US history where there will be appeals and counter appeals and on. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And in 1980, the US Supreme Court finally comes down saying, yeah, that was screwed up. Sorry, we, yeah, we stole the land. That was messed up. Sorry about that. It is a few million dollars to make up for that. And this is where the story gets weird because the Lakota were some of the poorest people in the United States in terms of per capita income. Say, screw your money, we want the land back. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's not the way it works. You know, we're only, if you want land back, you can go to Congress or something, but the best we can do is give you money. Lakota say, we don't want your money, we'll go to Congress. In Congress, they get somebody, Bill Bradley, to push a bill trying to um, return portions of the black hills not the whole thing they wouldn't touch private property anybody was land in the black hills or homes or stuff they would get to keep it only the land that was in the Public. hands of the state mm-hmm. or federal and even that is considered too controversial to push because well you can figure it out you know if you start giving back to american indians on the basis that it was stolen well pack up your bags and head back to wherever the hell your ancestors are from because the whole continent was stolen yeah, right totally so that's but it remains a big lakota thing of just this pride into we do not sell the black hills we'll keep arguing until we get some land back the yankton are the only group out of all the lakota dakota nakota tribes that cash the money that decide at some point where the tribal government will say yep we'll take the money thank you like to give you an idea like one of the the chairman of the yankton tribe at the time he um you know he's a guy when american indian movement protests were going on in the 1970s he when they went up to mount rushmore to address some of this issue he said those damn protesters they have done more harms to the indians of the state that all the communistic movement across the country has done in the last 10 years so you know very heavy assimilation pro-us government vibe these are some of the words that james wrote down about the black hill thing where i'm going to explain a couple of other things but if you want to start reading this yeah in this his is in voice. his own word is um when he tells the story of what happened with his tribe you know and why so basically he was saying i'm a dakota warrior a defender of my people a traditional indian who did not forget what honor means i would give i wouldn't give it up for a million dollars 
I'm the only one of my tribe who never accepted the money for the sale of the Black Hills, our sacred land, the heart of the world for the Lakota Sioux. The American government obtained them illegally, misinterpreting the 1858 treaty, and then tried to wash their conscience with a retroactive payment. Only my tribe, shame on them, voted in favor of accepting that payment against the resolution of the Intertribal Council. <clears throat> in favor of, I, I still remember the, the, the desperation. I felt the anger when those checks came. It was almost Christmas, and I didn't have any money to buy a present for my daughter, Cecily, who was then seven years old. But that money I couldn't touch. I pinned the check above my bed with a thumbtack and wrote on top of it, no way the Black Hills are not for sale. Of course, I understand that waving money in the face of a tribe where unemployment was 89% in 1978 and just before Christmas was a big temptation. It was brought before the General Council on December 15, and thanks to the efforts of Larry Cornoyer, the most corrupted chairman in the Yankton history, not many understood what those funds were for. He got the majority to vote in favor, and of all who cashed the checks, some did not even know they had to do with the Black Hill sale. But many knew, and even one of my closest blood relatives, whom I begged not to take the money, told me, they will never give us the land back. I never heard of no land given back to us, so I'm going to get my money until I can. You should do the same. Yeah, so that's the context, and that's become one of the... Um, I mean, Jim, I think I think by now he was the only guy who never cashed in. Like, for the long... You know, there were a few friends and relatives who didn't for a while, and bottom line, this was one of the big things in his life. Like, the Christmas story, in fact, the way he tells it, you know, he he struggled with it, you know. the He went off the Missouri River, which is next to the reservation. He was out there fishing. He was holding the check, thinking about it, going over it, going over it, and he was pissed because he had no money for a gift for his daughter. I'm proud to tell you that I am one of those 23 Yankton Sioux who never took no money for the Hesapa, the Black Hills, the Pahasapa. My brother Sam never. <clears throat> Quite a few of us never. 23 of us. And all the young yet. And there was a time when I, it was right, right during Christmas, right before Christmas, uh, 1981, that they issued these checks. And it's true, I never had money for the, to buy my daughter uh, Christmas presents. Uh, she got what she wanted, true, but I couldn't give it to her. But now, today, I know my daughter thinks more of me for not doing that than she would have had I accepted it. And so, uh, I'm very proud to tell you that you have pick and picked uh, a worthy person to help. 
Now, get into the case of why eventually you ended up meeting him and what was the whole thing. There had been a long history of conflict between some families that were mostly white and um, some other families from the Yankton Reservation where, you know, there's a long history of violence going on for generations. Uh, you know, classic small town family feuds except intensified by the race cards that played a big role in this story. Um, like there was a case in like mid-1970s where this one uh, Yankton guy, for example, was driven off the road by members of this one extended white family. And uh, the guy was essentially killed. It was vehicular manslaughter and um, they killed him. Nothing came out from the trial. They did, uh, you know, the typical thing that happened, especially at that time when some American Indian guy would get killed by a white guy. It's like, you're lucky if you got it. Like if somebody got a two-year sentence would already be strange and basically they don't do it. In this case, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, they don't investigate it really. They make the whole thing, sweep it under the rug. At the time, there was a famous uh, Lakota medicine man, Crow Dog, who was... um, played a big role in the American Indian movement and he came down to the Yankton Reservation, went to Lake Andes and they had a UEP ceremony, which basically was a ceremony in which um, Crow Dog would talk to spirits to try to find out exactly what happened. And the story he got was uh, confirming the rumors on the Yankton Reservation about, yeah, these guys killed him and it was done that way. And again, at the time, to give you the context of the times right after having this powerful spiritual ceremony and the whole thing Karodog apparently turned to them and say hey I got a bunch of M16 back home let's go get them you know it's like so there was a giant shootout between some Yanktons and some members of these families and wow. yeah, in other words long story short um, this has been a long standing thing between some of these family and so what happened was, uh, at the time, um, Jim was working with a few other guys, and they were sharing a ride to drop everybody back home. And on this road in Wagner, there was they stumbled on this big giant fight taking place between members of this white family um, fighting against two Yankton teenagers. They are debating what to do, do we step in, do we not, you know, they're going back and forth, the, um, his co-workers. Eventually, they decide to get out of the car, and before you know it, it turns into a free-for-all with just a bunch of Indians and a bunch of white guys fighting in the middle of the street in pretty intense fashion. Now, this is not that out of the ordinary. It happened quite a bit. The thing that was out of the ordinary is that one of these guys, a member of the Gregor family, got hit with a carjack across the jaw, and his neck snapped and killed him. Now, there's a dead white man. Now, that's a big problem. So eventually, you know, Jim felt safe from a legal standpoint because he's like, I didn't touch that guy. So He was you know, not even there. He was uh, like 40 feet away when the guy went right. down. Right, so he was fighting somebody else and everything. So he felt like, you know, no biggie. You know, I mean, well, biggie in other ways, but no biggie from a legal standpoint. I mean, at least not for himself. Yeah. Right. I mean, he was there, meaning participating yeah, in the yeah. fight. He always admitted <clears throat> that, but he definitely was not the one, who, you know, actually hit the guy and provoke his death. And, you know, the initial um, pathologist report would have cleared him because the pathologist was just saying how this one blow that snapped his neck killed him. So then you have to fight that one guy. That one guy wouldn't be James. No problem. 
the pathologist later changes things saying well yeah i mean that killed him but there are also other bruises on his body so suddenly you're opening to multiple convictions because you're not just looking for the guy who killed him you're also looking basically for anybody who participated into the fight and so explain legally the pathologist changed his opinion during the trial which is incredible meaning after talking you know to basically to the prosecutor then he came back and he changed his opinion and decided that uh, the cause of that was a concert of blows this is incredible i mean in whatever court you would hear something like that and you'd be like what and i mean and this defender i mean is a attorney didn't challenge that and he didn't because he was like a you know he was just a public defender oh yeah the public defender story was great because you know not having money clearly you can get your own attorney so you get the public defender the first guy that was assigned to the indian guys involved in this story was a guy who was a known racist and hey. so they were like hey sorry can we can we get somebody else perhaps and steve indian hater isn't exactly right. who i want on my defense team so they gave him a new guy except that this was a guy who had worked for the family of the victim oh. uh, a little bit in the past and so they're like can we get another guy and they're like hey man he's a small county tough shit you're stuck him. with it you know right. they, you, we don't have anybody else so yeah that trial didn't exactly flow smoothly now to avoid getting lost into a whole complicated legal odyssey let's just say yeah it didn't quite pan out because beside the fact that finding him guilty was obviously ridiculous given the evidence and it didn't add up the fact that really showed you that something didn't add up was the fact that he got sentenced to 80 years again 8-0 for manslaughter if nothing else tells you that right there tells you something is really off with the story how is that even possible is it a north dakota statute that allowed that i mean south dakota yeah i mean oh, there, it's, it's judge jurisdiction mm-hmm. judge it's um there's uh, it's, it's like it's, it's yeah they decide but um and you can argue you know well he had a previous criminal record so there's a pattern here i can impose a heavier sentence and all yeah, of that but stuff. i mean from 10 or 17 to 80 yeah that's definitely another thing but right? there's no sort of yeah. three strikes thing or anything like no. that going no, on no, no there wasn't no. at that time okay yeah and um you know by that point his family his friends everybody on the reservation basically think you're done you know there's there's no confidence in the law it's like when the fuck did the law ever work for us so it's like yeah you do an appeal yeah where's that gonna go you know if you have the state against you if you have the law against you you know you have an all white jury white victim white judge yeah you're screwed tough luck and the idea is if you are ever gonna get out is because you get out it's not because uh, the law will magically open the door for you so there's um, one of his friends, if I remember saying how it's the duty of the warrior when captured by enemies to escape, you know, yeah. and that's definitely, you know, James said uh, he was a South Dakota Houdini, I guess. He had a <laughs> lifelong career of breaking out of jail. So in this case, nine months after he's in for his sentence in South Dakota State Penitentiary, he organized what the newspapers would call South Dakota Great Escape, because six inmates managed to break out, squeezing, covering themselves in Vaseline, squeezing through these tiny tunnels, do this whole thing, you know, pretty wild stuff. They escape. Five of them are all caught within a month. And James, they don't. You know, he's going to be on the run for a good two years, right under the nose, right there two on the reservation. And, three days. and mm-hmm. uh, wow. you know, they can catch him. So they are not. By now, if he already wasn't popular with authorities, 
uh, is making them look foolish and stupid. It's not exactly helping his popularity <laughs> with the police force. And they... Um, yeah, the story, the only story about his escape is amazing. You know, like, um, and the funeral, a lot of people who came to the microphone now felt like, you know, they were okay telling the stories of when he escaped. So there was basically a race to the microphone to say, hi, <laughs> I had him when he was, you know, on the run, you know, and yeah, a lot of people came out and told the story of how, you know, he stayed with them or, you know, they were, he was hiding, you know, in a hiding place in their house and the cops were coming to look for him and he was actually right there, you know, listening to their friends, not to his friends, talking to the cops, you know, or, you know, having coffee with them. And then he would just go to another relative or another friend's house or, or another place, but basically managed to stay out, to stay out, hidden by everybody, all the elders. The elders were actually telling their, their children, if you tell on Jim, I'm going to disown you, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and remember, um, as we say, we are talking he escaped in 87, uh, and he stayed out until 89, May to May, basically he escaped on May 27, and he stayed out until May 29, uh, 1989. This was before the casino, the Fort Randall Casino was open on his reservation. Big, huge thing for the reservation because uh, uh, when the, f the casino was open, of course, there were a lot of, you know, jobs for sure. the people. So there was a lot of money, more money available before there was a lot of poverty. So what happened was uh, um, they put um, they put basically a <clears throat> they put him on the most wanted list the 15 most wanted list that was the actually press. the tv show america's most right. wanted when looking for him they featured him another thing that pissed off the yanktons because a guy there was a white guy who had escaped south dakota state penitentiary a few years prior and he um, the first thing he had done when he escaped was go visit one of the witnesses that had put him behind bar and killed her so, you know, pretty serious, big deal. You know, he broke out of prison and then went to commit murder. His case was never featured on America's Most Wanted. So many Yanktons were like, hey, you have a white guy who escaped, goes on to kill people while he's on the run and under the radar. You have an Indian guy who escaped, doesn't really do anything wrong after he escapes. He's, he's just on the, the run. Dishes, I'm sure. Right. And he's on America's most wanted. What the hell is going on right. with that? You know, and they, so wow. they also put a bounty on his head for three thousand dollars. Right. At that time, you know, three thousand dollars, you know, was something there. No? And so, you know, he became pretty tough to be out, you know, and to control because remember, like everybody knows each other, small place, right? So to be hiding and not having anybody telling on you became really difficult. Please tell me it wasn't someone from the tribe who turned it. Of course it was, <laughs> yes. But, you know, part of the story, though, that's funny, is like there was this uh, Yankton Warrior Society called the United Red Brotherhood <laughs> that they put out, you know, wanted posters uh, that were the opposite, right? They were like, uh, it was anybody who talked to the marshals shall be shot. And uh, anybody who's uh, 
aiding and abetting and helping and comforting Jim Weddle can claim a $5,000 reward. Yeah, like we'll we know what the photo for the episode should be now. Right. We do have it, yeah. So, we do awesome. have it. So that was <laughs> pretty awesome. funny right there. Yeah. But yeah, long story. And Without getting a- into the details, because they get really nasty and ugly, the whole story. But basically, yes, uh, other people, relatives, friends, eventually told on him and stuff. And so he was busted after a couple of years. Under- oh, there's one more thing. So before he gets busted, that's pretty funny. Uh, a couple of stories in that regard. There's um, one of a friend of his that at some point see this dude on Halloween show up at her door wearing this mask, knocking on the door. And they start talking about, you know, it's like, who the hell is this? You know, she was a lady with a bunch of kids in the house, and it's like there's this dude with a Halloween mask on. I don't feel no, so first comfortable. The first thing he asked was, Are you alone? And right. she was like, You don't ask <laughs> a woman alone in the yeah. house. And you eventually, know? you know, they had the whole yeah. conversation yeah. of like, Oh, do you know Jim Weddell? And she was basically making it very clear that she was very supportive and she was scared of him because winter was coming and what is on the run. And so he took off his mask and it was him and, and she took him in. No, he showed her the, the letter, the refusal of the Black Hills. That's what convinced her, you right. know, because Jimmy was always going around, you know, with this refuse, you know, check. Still, Black even Hills. on the run, he's right, right, right. And that really wow. helped him a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's part of his legend, really, you know, because that made him believable. You know, and not only, but in the last part of his life made him also believable to be a role model for the kids, you know, because like we were saying before about drinking and all of that, since Jim got out of prison, he was really big about, you know, also talking to kids not to drink, you know, and getting troubles. Look what happened to me, right? Not because he was drunk when that happened, but for all the stuff before. And uh, so, yeah, the letter of the Black Hills was the same thing. He would always carry it with him. Always. And that letter actually opened some doors. Like he opened the door yeah. of this lady, you know, who took him in and hi- hid him. Yeah. And there was one with, um, well, I guess we won't mention his name because he's still alive, but another very famous leader of the American Indian movement, along with Russell Means. When the heat was on and he started feeling like people were beginning to tell on him and he had to get out of the Anton Reservation. At some point, he sent a relative with the letter and everything to this American Indian movement leader and say, hey, man, can you help me? And this guy, so <clears throat> went to get him and they took him to Pine Ridge Reservation at the house of this family. Well, we can say because the guy is gone, but Russell Laudahawk was, um, Russell Laudahawk is funny. If you guys ever watched the documentary uh, Incident at Oglala, that is about the Leonard Peltier case, Russell Laudoc shows up at some point and he's all proud telling how he hid Peltier for a while and the FBI was looking for him all over the United States and he was in his house and all of that. And <laughs> so I guess he was part of his, uh, you know, he would give safe haven to notorious Indian outlaw heroes. And uh, in this case, so Jim got to go there. He said, you know, the... Um, the Russell Laudoc wives had just died, so there was nothing in the house because they had given away all their property as part of the giveaway for her death. His daughter was pregnant. So it was kind of a weird situation. And part of what made the whole situation weird was that this was an American Indian movement place. Considering that Jim had just had a shootout prior, a decade prior, with one of the big leaders of the American Indian movement, he's like, are you stepping in the lion's den here? You know, you're, are we friends or are we not? Are we clear on that? And so Russell Laudoc asked him about the shootout with Russell Means and James gave his version of the story. And Laudoc was like, yeah, 
Russell can be like that sometimes. So he's like, yeah, I understand. You know, he still was friends with Russell Means, but he was like, yeah, I get it. You know, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally you have to shoot friends. It happens. <laughs> Everyone's like, wow. So it was funny. Has but in any case, Cheney. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, um, they had him there, and that's when um, he was... Mm, I was about to give away somebody's identity. I won't, so I'll stop there. All but right, stop there. The, um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a pretty funny story. And uh, eventually he got busted. Jail went to, they added 15 years to his sentence for escape. And again, 15 for escape is a really long time considering that no one of the other five people who escaped got even half of that. And but, he harmed um, nobody while he was out, did he? No. So it's, again, it... Not only didn't, but he always say he forgave even the people who told on him. And that's how he was. He was always... That's one of uh, Jim, Jim's characteristic that was really impressing. Like, you know, he was there, obviously victim of big injustice, but he always said, you know, I forgive them. You know, even, you know... His own relatives who told him, you know, basically for money, wow. he always told me, I don't care, I forgive them, you know. And it was a great attitude, you know, because then it actually worked as he said, because these same people then were getting ashamed of what they did. And so then they were trying instead to get close to him, you know, like when he was released from prison, mm -hmm. it completely changed the situation. Wow. You know, so. But that's, I guess, where the whole story that she told earlier about how eventually she met him when they transferred him back to South Dakota State Penitentiary and the accident took place and she went to meet him and started helping with the medical care. But then Jim is the kind of guy that, you know, you would meet him and he strike a chord with you right away. You know, there's a strong personality there. You either really like him or really don't. It's hard to be indifferent to the guy. Was he the same no, way where he would immediately click into you or not yeah there's I mean, no middle ground mm -hmm. he no. wasn't wishy-washy about anything no, no definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. so um, and at the time there was also a whole series of issues because you know they um he started getting letters from other indian inmates who told him look some guards told us that they would um i forget what they had promised them but basically a good deal possibly a sentence cut or something but basically they gave them a deal if we kill you so um, they are going to move the snack machine to an angle that is next to a dark corner. They're going to give us a weapon and we're, we said no, but watch out because somebody else may say yes. Now, this could have been total bullshit made up by guys who are out to spook him for fun or it could have been real. Um, I tend to side for the second option considering what I know about the whole thing. But, you know, at the time too, there was, you know, guards regularly just going after him, racial insults all the time, which he smartly at some point taped and was able to use that to yeah, give that Yeah, this was to, uh, actually one of Jimmy's, <laughs> you know, mm, one example of how he was, like, uh, <clears throat> since he was, uh, well, in South Dakota State Penitentiary, as we said, they really didn't like him, you know, because he made the fool out of them with the escape and all of that. So they were always trying, you know, in some way to punish him, you know, putting him in the hole for stupid things or, you know, keeping him in administrative segregation because he was an escape risk. So no contact visit or things like that. The hole is solitary confinement. Right. But, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm talking like a jail jergo. <laughs> right. I'm sure our audience is very familiar with the hole. Right. 
<laughs> but anyhow, yeah, um, what happened was at that point, we are already like in probably um, beginning of 95. So he has been back in South Dakota State Penitentiary since, uh, you know, more than one year, like almost two years. And there are all these threats, you know, to his Basically, you know, I was uh, trying to go on with the investigation and the legal battle, and we'll get to that, you know, because uh, um, we were trying to reopen the case in uh, habeas corpus, no? But uh, if he was not going to be alive, of course, you know, all of that would have been not only uh, useless, but, you know, lost. So uh, he was telling me, I need to get the transfer. I need to get the transfer to another state at this at this point, because here I don't feel safe. I mean, people come up to me and tell me they've been paid, they've been promised stuff, you know, to just get get me, you know, and uh, explaining me how they told them to do it, you know, things like that. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> how do we do to get you a transfer, you know, because I asked them and they said no, <laughs> of course, you know. And uh, so I was like, well, Jimmy, you know, you have to give me something, you know, let's think about uh, what we can use. Because uh, when I went to them, to the warden, you know, I went to the Department of Correction, telling them about these threats. Some of these inmates were even willing to testify, you know, but they didn't even want to hear about, you know, they basically told me, oh, this is just a punk criminal, you know, and so you don't know what you're talking about and stuff like that. So I was like, well, we have to help ourselves, what we can use, no? So um, Jimmy told me that uh, there was uh, a guard who was always making racist remarks with him, no? So I was like, wow, if you could only tape him, <laughs> you know, that would be something, right? And at that point, uh, I, I had um, um, acquired the status of attorney assistant to his attorney, we basically uh, hire attorney, an by the way, not the crazy court. No, a, a, a real attorney no. that James chose because he said, I want him. He's a Lakota attorney. He has even been, you know, he's devastating in court. He's fantastic. I want him. The Terry Pechota. Terry really Pechota. And uh, the only problem was we needed to raise money for him and then we'll say how we did it, you know, because I had no money, you know, his family had no money. So, um, you know, he needed money, right? And money was needed for the investigation because there was a lot of investigation that needed to be done to discover new evidence. No? But in that case, we were focused only on having him safe. So next meeting I had with him, he came there and we were in the attorney room and he produced a tape. And when I went, of course, I had, you know, when I went back with the tape under my jacket and in the hotel room in Sioux Falls, I listened to the tape. I was like, this is the bomb, <laughs> you know, really. So how next, did he pull that? Now, obviously, it's Walkman are widely available at that point. It was probably how did he get that tape? Because I was hoping you were going to say you baked a cake. Walkman in it. <laughs> I would have, believe me. <laughs> you know, but no, no, no. He, he was able to get uh, a tape recorder from one of his friends, you know, who was in population and could have it, you right. know, like, uh, and uh, he managed to hide that and uh, he managed to provoke the guard. Even, you know, the guard didn't really need to be provoked because he was an asshole, you know, so he was somebody who would always shoot out, you know, slurs and stuff like that. 
but uh, Jimmy definitely that time was fishing for that and he was very good at that believe me as much as he could <laughs> charm you know everybody I mean he could charm the monoliths of Stonehenge if he wanted to <laughs> but he could always piss you off really big <laughs> he yeah. was great at that you know so he pissed the guard off and the guard went all the way and so that was all on tape so next thing 7 a.m the next morning i'm calling the warden and say i got something for you and so i went to meet steve lee <laughs> the attorney of the south dakota the State Penitentiary. Warden, not attorney, right? the warden yeah. yes the warden and uh, you know i told him we should talk again about uh, this transfer and he was like there is nothing to say i already told you i'm not going to transfer him and they were saying maybe you should listen to this so when i put the tape on you know of course he tried to tell me oh that's not true or things like that but guess what like five days later jim got the letter that he was going to be transferred yeah so i mean and the whole story in fact it gets pretty interesting that way because the amount of stuff, the um, the stuff that she had done to get him out for the next ten years is pretty insane. I mean, when it when I think about the amount of work involved to make that happen, it was nuts. You know, it was really just insane. And again, it's also very discouraging because you put a ton of work, you pull off small miracles left and right, getting pathologists to re-review the case for free purely through willpower and charm and going through it, getting supporters to be able to put some money down for all the legal expenses, you know, all of this stuff. And still, you are going against a wall, right? Because, you know, by now you are on appeals and those kind of things. They It really boils down to what judge you get. And so it was a long, crazy-ass process that in many cases looked like there was no way in hell you could pull it off. And part of her thing was always like, I'll find a fucking way, you know, one way or another, I'm going to find a way. And, you know, it's hard to believe it after a while, you know, even like, I don't know how you kept believing it, because after a few years, you're like, look, it's not like you haven't tried. How the hell do you keep believing you can make it happen? No, it sounds like they had an easier time getting Nelson Mandela out of jail than this cat. And so you would go to these appeals, were they panels, like three judge panels, and it would just be like, no, or forget about it? what happened was like, you know, um, Right after I met him, you know, I decided to start, you know, the investigation and see if we could find any legal ground, you know, to fight. And um, Jim actually had tried something by himself. It was uh, somebody who would believe it the impossible. So he has seen on uh, 60 Minutes on CBS this pathologist, Dr. Di Maio, and... Um, Dr. Di Maio basically reverted the case of a guy, black guy, accused of shooting his wife. And, uh, you know, he was sentenced to a long sentence and, you know, there was no hope. And uh, the guy accepted to review the case pro bono in this case and basically took the guy out of jail. So Jimmy is in Marion, see this on TV, because in Marion he had access to see TV, you know, at that point. And uh, think about it and think, well, Dr. De Maio is not a racist. I'm going to write him. So he writes him a letter. But the letter never get there because from Marion, you know, evidently his mail was, you know, held or something. Anyhow, when he tells me this story, I'm like, oh, you wrote him, but you did never heard back from him. Okay, so 
what is his name, you know, and all of that. And then next thing, I'm calling CBS, finding out where Dr. Di Maio is. I, find out that, I found out that at that time, so a few years later, he was uh, the pathologist, the state pathologist of Texas. And so I call him. I call him for a long time and never get an answer back. And then finally, one day, this lady answers the phone and her name is Gloria, like me, <laughs> you know, same thing. So I try to joke around a little bit on that, you know, and I actually tell her, you know, I wrote letters to Dr. DiMaio and I'm calling since a while. You're new, you don't know me, but it has been a long time. And I tell him, I tell her the story of James and I don't know what it was, but this lady got evidently, you know, touched by something. And so she said, okay, I'm gonna have Dr. DiMaio call you. And he actually did. And so we, you know, I talked to him a few times and he agreed, we corresponded again and he agreed to review the case pro bono. So I sent him all the stuff, you know, the autopsy report, all that he asked for. And he basically said, there is no way that this death of this guy can be caused by a concert of blows. This was one only blow and it was strict with the carjack. And that's not what James had in his hands, right? And the, so because of that, I'm talking to Terry Pechota, the attorney that he chose, and we're like, well, you know, this is ground for this new evidence, no? So if we can convince, you know, a judge that, uh, you know, we're going to gather all this, we can go to Dr. DiMaio and uh, tape his deposition, you know, and uh, we can go back to maybe we can have, you know, is a public defendant admitting that he didn't do everything that he had to do, you know, and all of that. So we started a crazy, crazy investigation, you know, going all over America, you know, to meet, uh, just uh, to be sure, I wanted two pathologists, not even one, you know, so I got another one from Florida, Dr. Heckert, you know, same thing, we agreed to do it pro bono, no money involved, but there were, of course, we needed to raise money for the expenses, for flights and everything. And so, and here is the other story uh, about how we did it, you know, and all the international support. So, basically, uh, what happened is I wrote a little book that was published in Italy, in England, in France, not in America, because, of course, there were too many stories that were not good to release before, until he was in prison. But we're going to publish it now. We're talking with Daniel about doing the book now. And... Uh, we went to shoot a documentary at the reservation with uh, two friends of mine who I was working with in New Orleans to shoot a documentary. I didn't know them. They came from Italy. They were basically the crew that was assigned to me, you know, from this uh, uh, Italian television. And uh, just to tell you how Jim was, you know, I just had them read a couple of letters, you know, from him. And immediately they committed to give up their vacation. It was their first time in America. You know, they were planning to have a whole California vacation after that. And they gave up that. They came with me to the reservation. They put their own money to shoot this documentary. We had the cameras, of course, you know, from the Italian TV. We shot this documentary. This documentary went all over Europe, you know, in circus to raise money for the legal expenses. And that's how we got the money to do all of that. But in terms of legal thing, what happened is we gather all this evidence, right? And finally, we're going to have a hearing. And that was in uh, um, November 1995, you know. 
we had assigned this judge that was Judge Rush. And you probably remember, Daniele, when mm-hmm. we got this judge, you know, he had the, the reputation of being very tough. No? So even the attorney, Terry Pechota, was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is a really tough judge. But uh, James was like, no, I like him, you know, I, I want him. That's okay. We can go with that because I feel like he would see, you know, everything and all of that. So we decided to have him and we went for the hearing. And so James was brought to the reservation to have this hearing, you know, right there. And the hearing went pretty well. We were really convinced that, you know, we were good hands. But after that, you know, there were, as usual, um, delays and delays and oh, delays. Oh, yeah, that was crazy. Do you remember there was, like, right. the court reporter that took down all the testimony never turned it in? Conklin. The, she took down the testimony of uh, Gary Conklin. Yeah, yeah, one of the guys who, who right. played a big role. Like, his piece of evidence was useful. And so the whole idea was, like, you know, she kept not turning it in. So months go by, months go by, and you become like, hey, do you either want to go ahead without this testimony or you, um, or we can keep trying, but we'll see, you know. And it's like, why is this lady not turning it in? It just didn't make any sense. Who is she related to? And it was pretty obvious yes. that somebody made her a deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. That basically told her, don't worry about Because, I mean, the judge in charge of the case at one point put her in contempt of the court, you know, it could be a criminal offense, except that it was never enforced. There was a warrant out against her for this. But nobody chased her. Except that clearly somebody had told her, don't worry about it. It's going to go nowhere. Just don't turn it in. And in fact, that's what happened. And after, I forgot how long it was, but it was, we're talking about probably over a year or something. More where, than a year. Yeah. Where this delay kept going. Eventually, James was like, you know what? We have enough evidence even without that one. Even though that would be a knockout blow, you know, we can't wait forever. And so we went ahead without the piece of evidence and the judge turned it down. Yeah, not only, but the judge, uh, the judge too took his sweet time saying, you know, oh, I I didn't have time. I had another case when there was death penalty involved, so I didn't have time to review the evidence. So years went by. And it was crazy, you know, because that tells you a long story about, uh, you know, even when you want to do everything by the law, right? And think you're right there about to make it happen. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like the legal proceedings can take forever. And uh, that's how, you know, we went up to 10 years, basically, you know. Is your documentary available on the Internet anywhere? Can we? Uh, The documentary is, um, there is a piece of that, actually, that was uh, released by Stefano Stefano Scotti and Osvaldo Verriard the two guys who were with me they put it on um, YouTube oh excellent yeah we can put it in the episode notes I think it's just a little piece and it's in Italian so just keep that in mind but to I have a question that probably should have been asked an hour ago but the guy with the carjack did he go to jail too yeah yes he got uh, was he already out by the time this all happened uh, he got out he He got out before yeah he did last time he did way last time yeah definitely that's unbelievable so he didn't get out until 2003 right the Ten years. You had your big. When did the um? Everything when did the was judge in. Stop everything. Was it five so, years earlier? Yeah, no, eight years earlier. Eight. Because uh, we're talking about ninety-five. The hearing that I was telling yeah, you, yeah. basically, the hearing where we presented all our new evidence, the habeas corpus, was uh, in October ninety or, or November. Now I don't remember. Probably November, nineteen ninety-five. So. Imagine 1995 to December 2003, sorry, <laughs> 2003, it's eight years. 
full eight years. And so Daniela was asking, how did you keep the faith? You know, I mean, how did you keep to believe? How did I keep it? It's all Jim, you know, right. like he was somebody like, uh, you know, he was uh, even, uh, he always uh, wanted to go before the boards of pardons and parole, right? But he never said, I'm repentant because I didn't commit the crime. Yeah, the but board of pardons, unlike an appeal where it's based on evidence and say you're not guilty, the board of pardons is... I'm a good model prisoner and uh, I'm sorry for my crimes and blah, blah, blah. If you maintain your innocent, you can't really win at the Board of Pardons because the first prerequisite is you have to admit your crime. If you're saying I'm not guilty, it's done, right? right. There's no point. But still, he wanted to go before them every time, right? So it was like, uh, okay, we were raising petitions, signatures and all of that, you know. But he always said, I'm not going to say that I'm, you know, sorry for something I didn't do. I'm not going to say that I did it because I didn't, no. But he was always convinced that something good should happen, you know. So that's why I was like, okay, you know, you want to do it, let's do it, you know. Or same thing, like he was telling me, try this, even when things seem completely crazy, right, some crazy mission. But still, he was always believing because... The thing is, he knew that he was going to get out of prison. It's exactly like he knew that his time came when he passed away, right? He knew because it was like he's going to take, maybe it's not this year, maybe it's not next year, but it's going to happen, you know. And uh, and I did believe it too because uh, um, beside the fact that I dream about, you know, not only in the beginning but even later, and I always knew that was going to happen in Supreme Court and not before. Of course, you know, you fight hoping that it happens before but you know that's what I but Jimmy was somebody that would give you so much strength you know like he was the strongest person I ever met really strongest the bravest there is no doubt about it Daniela met him a number of times in prison he came with me all over these 10 years you know to visit James so many times and um, and of course Danny met him when he got out of prison you know and he came to California a lot and all of that. But uh, he was like, uh, there, there was no way, even if he had to stand alone, he would not lose his faith. He was an optimist, you know, he was, uh, it was unbelievable. Nobody could break him. So being close to him, you know, was like, he would give you all the strength you needed. And plus, we were very similar, both really stubborn, but like I remember Jimmy telling me, I never lost a fight. And I was like, me neither. <laughs> you know? So I was like, good, that makes a good team, right? So, but yeah, that's how it was. You know, I was like, well, you know, Jimmy decided that he wanted his day in court. This time he, he told me, if I want to, I could be out of here now because they cannot hold me. There is no prison that can hold me. I can escape even with all their sensors and everything. I would find a way because if the spirits want me out, I'm going to be out. But he told me, sometimes I even think there is a reason why I'm in prison. And the reason is that uh, I have to win this battle for my people to show that it can be possible, to show that even when you think there is no hope, there is always a way. I'm sure he had a full taste of being on the run, too. That couldn't have been yeah, the exactly. greatest of time. That's the other thing. is like you probably don't want, after a while, to be just 
out that way because yeah that's yeah not fun. that's for sure too you know you don't have a life basically i mean it's totally different life so how did you get this thing up to the south dakota supreme court by stages you know you go through what level was what level was judge rush was he just sort of like a there one right before i think was it there was nobody between rush and the supreme court was there wow. yeah there was uh, between rush and the supreme court uh, there was another round. is there another one mm-hmm. yeah but yeah, it was so basically eight years to do two loss, 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 yeah. loss, loss, last possible chance because uh, South Dakota Supreme Court, there was nothing after that. You know, right. that was the last one. And that's when the judge look at it and he say, are you kidding me? This trial was crap. This was ridiculous. Uh, you have to give him a new trial if you want to keep him in because this is crap. And of course, you know, they couldn't really give him a new trial because they had no evidence to go on. And so eventually, you know, it. Where was this guy 10 years ago? That's unbelievable that somebody just was hanging out. And it really boiled down to, you know, the last possible shot, and it worked out that way. By the way, in a funny twist of irony, the the same month in which James was, uh, I forget if it's when he got out or when he got the word that he was going to get out or something important with the case about him getting out happened, is the same month in which uh, a guy who had been multiple times governor of South Dakota and was a time a congressman from South Dakota, William Janklow, who had a reputation for being part of the reason why they kept voting for him over and over and over as governor, as congressman, is because he had his reputation as uh, fighting against Indians and making sure, like in the 1970s, he was quoted as saying that the solution to the Indian problem is grab a bunch of their leaders and put a bullet in their heads. You know, that was the guy, and he was convicted of manslaughter in the same month in which James got out, which was highly satisfying. And this is 1980, not 1880. No, I know, this is crazy, right? It's like, it's, yeah, no, some of the stories are straight from another century because it's like, are you kidding me, you know, that fact that you could... But yeah, South Dakota back then, yeah, rough place that way. Rough place, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we even uh, sent a bunch of petitions because the funny thing about James was that uh, even uh, with all this story, he still thought the Bill Janklove could do it. So he wanted me to send petitions to him, you know, for governor pardon eventually. Yeah, or, you know, it's, 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 and I was that. like, why do I want to go in front of this guy, you know? And he was like. Well, you know, he might see the injustice, no? <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, so, that's the delusional part of Jim, where it's not Yeah, but, you know, wow. in, uh, to tell you the truth, it all adds up, actually, to, to his story. And uh, actually, he was right. I mean, now, thinking back, you know, all this thing, he was right. He was, he was exploring every possible avenue. Because anyhow, he had nothing to lose, right? I mean, he was already behind bars, and he was already... So instead of being pessimistic and desperate, he was like, let's try everything. And, uh, you know, he was right to do it because mm-hmm. you were like, no, okay, absolutely. you know, what if it happens? No. Yep. So I, I went on some of these crazy missions, you know, and of course, uh, most of them, they were just telling me, no, you know, are you crazy? And so, okay, we ruled that off, you know, <laughs> and that's it. But in some way, it helped because uh, also people were talking about it. You know, people saw that we were doing that, you know, and going around with petition to be signed brought attention to his case. So, I mean, James had uh, something like 5,000 international supporters. Wow. That imagine, I mean, people who would write him regularly, pre-internet. were involved in yeah. the case, pre-internet, 
they were contributing small amounts of money. We're talking about people who didn't have money, you know, but they were like sending $20, you know, $30 uh, to pay for the legal expenses. And I mean, he had all these supporters from all over the world uh, being, you know, a guy who grew up on, on his reservation and, you know, he never got to travel for pleasure. I mean, he was busy fighting for his people, no? So he didn't even know. He told me when the first time that he received a letter from these people in Italy, he had to go take a map out to see where Italy was. Because he was like, what is Italy? Where is it? I mean, wow. yeah, I know about Italian spaghetti, right? But <laughs> I don't know where Italy right. is. And if I send a letter, I want to see what uh, this letter, what kind of, you know, tour around the world will do. So he went to look at the map, you know, at the Atlas uh, to see where Italy was. And he was always questioning, why these people who don't even know me want to help me? But it was an amazing story. Like he really touched the heart of people. Everybody got in touch with, you know, he was uh, immediately charmed by him, impressed by him, because that was how big was his personality. You know? Yep, big, big time. If a person hears someone's voice that is significant because it completes the circle, it's that feeling I have. When I read your letters and uh, talk to you on the phone, it's that type of feeling that I get. You folks have a strong feeling that comes from your voice. And yes, uh, because I'm a believer. Now, when did you meet him for the first time? Yeah, I was about, probably it was 95 or 94. 94. 90, 94, yeah. First time I went so to So he was in the aquarium when you saw him for the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, He was, man, it was funny. Like, first time I met him, he, was, he had been in solitary confinement for so long that by the time I saw him, he was whiter than me. Wow. You know, because, you know, he hadn't seen the sun in years, literally in years. And uh, eventually when we got him out of there, got him to population and stuff where he had the recreation in the yard, he got all his color back and suddenly, oh, you're dark skin. You know, <laughs> first time I met him, he was so freaking white. It was crazy. And um, now, I thought Gloria mentioned, did you work directly with Amnesty International or... No, I was just uh, helping out when I was in Italy, okay, you know, okay. just doing some, you know, regular work. So they weren't involved. This was just sort of your no. and, and your supporters and his yes. supporters' yes. own little battle cry. They didn't come Completely and help out. Completely grassroots, you know. In yeah, the, totally independent. Yeah, totally independent. And so speaking the, of the crazy missions, she, she had like some of the times when going to pick up documents from Jim, like originals that are key for the trial. She had like guys started following her from the prison uh, trying to one guy trying to break out break into the hotel room trying to steal the documents all of that so there's clearly there was a lot of interest there in keeping him in prison there was yeah. a lot of stuff going on behind uh, yeah jimmy was even scared because of course when during the investigation i was going around you know reservation country roads and you know those were times i mean Okay, 92, 93 was already much better than the 70s, of course, you know, but still, you know, things could happen, you know, because you are isolated. And so the funny thing, I remember at some point, that was so crazy that at some point, Jimmy was always asking me, uh, no, don't go alone, you know, are you crazy? And 
know, it was true that even in Sioux Falls, when I was going to visit him at the prison, and then, you know, I was staying at the Holiday Inn downtown, and then I was going out to dinner by myself, people were looking at me like I was crazy. You know, a woman alone in a restaurant, you know, that calls for trouble. She probably wants us to go there, you know, and do... So because of that, at some point when I was around the reservation and I needed to go, you know, to fish out, you know, some papers that was tough stuff to do, he was like, hmm, I'm going to send a couple of my people to protect you, no? So it was like, to protect me? Okay, you do if you, if you feel better, but I have no problem. And so I said, I'm going to send a couple of your nephews, or my nephews. And so I go to the reservation, and here come these two kids who are probably like 14 years old, right? Wait. Consider yourself protected. Right. And I was like, oh, so this guy should protect me? (laughs) But them, you know, these kids, actually, I got to know them later, you know, and to know what they did. And they were really good kids. I mean, they were young warriors, you know. So, I mean, I refused the protection. (laughs) At that time, I was like, I feel better to go by myself, not involving kids in my business. But yeah, that's how it goes, you know. I remember the story of the dude who was climbing this pipe to get to the room, to get to the window, and she opened the window, it was right there, like a a a foot away, face to face, and the dude was like, I think I'm letting go of the pipe and running, because it's crazy. So, yeah, wild, wild tales. Now, anything that you want to, because I want to, you know, just close with one thing and then play a clip of uh, Jim talking, play a clip of, uh, we'll close out with a song by the White Swan Singers. Uh, That song, by the way, by David Arrow and the White Swan Singer was the song that they were playing when he escaped, you know, these friends of his, you know, from his tribe and this group of, you know, very good singer and drummer, they were playing this song when he was on the run after like 45 days that he was on the run because they knew he was trying to get close home, you know, to the reservation. And so his mom and Evelyn, you know, his then wife, went to ask them to play the song to give him strength. So he said when he got like two miles from there, he started to hear the song. Wow. Just to tell you how powerful it is. So this same song was played the day we had the final hearing and the day that he got out. And remember, we didn't really know that he was going to get out. You know, like, I mean, we I'm believe sure by that so. that point you were expecting right. best to be disappointed. Right. right. There was still, you know, a little bit of doubt, you know. I mean, not doubt, but anyhow, you know, a possibility that was not happening, even if we refused to believe it. So they were singing that song then, and the same song was at the, at the memorial, right? So, you know, it, you, it's a great song. I yeah, mean, so the episode is not yeah. over until you guys get through the song. You right. know, it's not just a close things out type of thing. How much time between the, the judge, I guess, not, did, you didn't declare it was a mistrial? Is that what he declared in the end? Or No, no, not mistrial. Um, it was um, reopening... Um, well, because kind of, because he's saying that they had to give him a new trial. And then what happened is it was going to yeah. take a while because the state could push for a new trial. Right. And we gather evidence. Now, they had nothing. You know, they couldn't do it, but they could drag it along long enough that it could be a while before he was released. Yeah. And so basically they came out and gave him a deal and say, how about served. we charge you for like assault or something? It's like, well, assault doesn't add yeah. up to 18 years. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of people. How about 
you were involved in multiple, you know, kind of like it was a way to basically say we are done, right? You know, you plead guilty to some minor crap. We just say right. time served. You walk. We don't drag but you then along. We, then you can't sue us for the. Then you can't sue no, us for exactly. millions of dollars. That was and, too time uh, served because the problem is exactly yeah. that. At that point, when the judge state, you know, that it was actually. Eh, we could have had a new trial, right. Right? but it was going to take forever, yeah. you know, and all of that. So Forgot it. that's basically when you have a deal, you know, like, so it was like, okay. So Did that happen that day? Did he walk mm -hmm. that day? No, mm -hmm. no, it was, it was between the decision and between when it finally worked out, there was a little bit of working with the state about. So it was, I forgot how many days he was, but it wasn't the same day. No, the same day out of court, he, he walked. Not the day that they... Uh, was it before then that they struck the deal? Because right, when did exactly. they strike the deal? I mean, oh. when the, yeah, it was like, uh, you know, I mean, there were talks, of course, you know, because uh, that's how it happens regularly. So, you know, it was already like uh, right there at court was decided like that, you know. Oh, because so. the judge had kind of said what it was going to be right. before. And so they yeah. started the behind but the door stuff. It. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. No, so, no, he walked that day. Right. I no, mean, but, he, we but we knew it before. The, right. Yeah, yeah. Which was amazing. You know? How yeah. big was his smile as he walked? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we're actually going to put to illustrate the episode as an episode right. peak. If you guys check it on the website, we're going to put a picture of uh, you guys. I think it was the day off or right. the day after. No, no, the same day. It's the same day yeah, off. Same uh, day so we so you see the smile. So you can see it there. Now, the U.S. has the biggest prison population in the world or at least the western world mm -hmm. and we have a terrible privatized prison system where people get paid to keep people in prison mm -hmm. so you got a lot of fighting left to do <laughs> I hope not. But no energy left. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> After that, that's the thing. Because yeah. like, the problem is when you are involved with this kind of story, then you start hearing more and more oh, yeah. stories like this, and there are a lot. The point is you have limited energy. Sure. So after a while, you know, there are cases that you almost don't want to know about because it's like the I've gave everything I got. No, even because left. remember, I mean, uh, when I started all of this, I was no attorney. I didn't know anything about the law, particularly the American system. I studied all of that because particularly because of this situation. The thing is, if I could study and understand the law, then I could help his attorney to do the investigation, you know, being an investigator. Right. And at that point, I also became his assistant. So I could have access to visit with James, you know, with contact visit, which proved to be instrumental, as yeah. we saw. No? So I did all of that, but that was not my regular job. That was not how I made, you know, money to live, right, or pay my bills. So it was all time that was basically coming out of my, you know, personal time or uh, renouncing sleep. You know, I mean, Daniela remembers we spent, you know, nights and nights going to Kinko's copies, you know, to copies all the documents, uh, oh. to make, you know, little... Uh, new zine to send to the supporters, you know, all done by me and him. You know, that was, uh, Daniele was helping me to do it, and uh, he was my only uh, helper, you know, in terms of, you know, there were international supporters, but they were somewhere else. Sure. And, uh, so, it was a lot more than just do you some kind of volunteer work, you know, or something. It was really like a mission, for sure, you know. Can you tell me about him making it home for the first time in Oh, it was years? crazy, yeah. I mean, it was like uh, 
people were going all over the reservation, all his family, you know, honking, you know, in the cars and all of that. And, um, you know, he was crazy. Like, yeah, everybody wanted a piece of him, basically. And the funny thing, one little episode just to tell you how he was. So at some point, he's in my car, I'm driving. Because, you know, you've been in prison for 18 years, you get out, you're all happy, but you have troubles to stay in the middle of all of this, you know, and people all around you and so many people and all of that. So he needed a little breath, right? So it was like, okay, let's get in the car. Let's go one moment to the cemetery. He wanted to go on his mother's grave, you know, and I was very good friend with his mother, you know, and uh, during those years I stayed at her house a lot. She told me stories. So I was like, yeah, let's go. So we're going through town and here he comes, a cop's car stopping me because I'm speeding through town at 32 an hour and the limit was 25, right? And so... I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, we're not. Jim, even. don't hit anybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just stay in the bag. <laughs> right. But the funny thing was like, so I'm like, oh, my gosh. So he's laughing his ass off, of course, <laughs> because it's like, oh, you're speeding. <laughs> you know, now here they come. You no? damn criminal. Right. You do them criminal. <laughs> so anyhow, they come. And the problem is even the cops, you know, were like, he was charming even them because they were like, Oh, you're Jim Weddell, you know, <laughs> because, of course, you know, they knew. Sure. Everybody in town knew, you know, what's going to happen. But they were playing like, oh, we haven't seen you in a big time. And it was all charming them, you know, and that's, you know, how it was. And then, of course, there was a celebration. There was a huge, uh, the family, I have to say, all of them, you know. And I want to remember at least his brother, Sam, his sister, Mercy, who helped me a lot. His nieces, his daughter Cecily, his nieces, Julie, Jody, Pokey, and Eliza, they were all helping out to make the biggest celebration ever. And it was. It Anticipated was apologies to everyone we're forgetting right now. Yeah, I mean, if I had to name everybody, you know, I mean, all these families, I said I should stay here and say like 350 names at least, you know, the closest one. But I mean, at least uh, I want to name the people I'm. I've been working closer with, you know, and and yeah, it was a great celebration. And um, yeah, we ended up then to go to his brother Sam's house, you know, and um, staying there and eating there. And and then there was um, a public celebration where, again, they gave him another eagle feather, (laughs) you know, because he had done something incredible. I mean, he made it out of you know, the white prison. And he made it out through the legal system, which was incredible, you know, when there was no hope. I think there's always hope is the message of this story. Seriously. Now, any anything you wanted to mention before I wrap things up? So, yeah, when he got out, he had these 10 years. It was, um, mm, his main focus was on the battle, the Black Hills, you know, that is still going on in court, as we said. Actually, not in court. Court is done. The only option would be Congress returning right, right. land because there are no levels left in um, legal. No, there are some corollary to that. So they're, you know, trying in different mm-hmm. ways. But anyhow, yeah. Uh, the message, let's say that uh, at least, you know, the message, the the <clears throat> legacy that Jim left, you know, was exactly, you know, about the Black Hills. He really was big into that and wanted this fight to continue, you know. So um, 
that's why I think uh, we are trying to go to publish a story here in the States now, you know, in America. So uh, I'm working at um, the outline of the new book, putting a lot, not only what was published already in Europe, but also a lot about the Black Hills, so that there will be the whole story for everybody who want to know more about it. And um, yeah, so this will be done. Another documentary will be probably done. I think Stefano and Osvaldo want to come to the reservation again this summer, and we will try to add more storytelling. And this could be actually a great movie. So if there is anybody in the audience who is a film agent or you know a literary agent who's not scared of this kind of stuff, please bring it up. You know, <laughs> we are here for that. Tom Cruise is... <laughs> no, please. <laughs> but yeah, to wrap things up, just a couple of things. One thing that I remember Jim saying, I even wrote it down at the time because I thought it was pretty funny, is uh, he would always be big on this idea of um, this very tribal idea of you have to take care, you have a bigger responsibility than an individual, and you have to take care of your people, quote unquote, your tribe, your family, your, in some way, even everything and everybody because it boils down to you know it, i remember one of the things he was like he was very nice with me he was very encouraging at the time and he was all like man you're gonna be the best at whatever you want to do you can do blah 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 you know very sort of positive encouraging messages but the tagline to that was always but always keep in mind whatever it is that you end up doing whatever it is that you can do well think about what's best for the people always keep in mind what's the best way to help the people always think of the people this was like this mantra that always kind of kept popping up that was what he lived by you know that was sort of his life motif in a lot of ways and that's what he spent his last 10 years on right since he was out of prison always trying to help his people you know try to do the best try to show by example you know so without further ado let's we'll play a clip of his own voice, that way you get to hear it, and then we'll play this song by um, David Aaron, the White Swan Singers. I am back. <laughs> there was a movie, a uh, horror movie, and that's what they said, you know, I'm back. <laughs> well, uh, as I said, uh, we have honorable intentions and we mean to live by him and uh, like I said you know from the beginning you know this this tape uh, well I guess I didn't but uh, you know I'm I'm just sending this so you guys will hear my voice those of you who didn't because I know and I'd love to hear you all of your voices and I'm sure someday I will you know someday we'll all meet and we'll have a, a good prayers, good food, good singing, good wine, and, uh, well maybe not wine, uh, well maybe a little, and, uh, good dance. Uh, someday uh, I hope to either bring you uh, to my country or I hope to bring uh, myself and the white swan singers to your country to uh, honor you in song oh, I, 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 I. 
and so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Back to work.